0: Last week we saw that Jesus performed a notable miracle. In fact, it was so notable that it just simply could not be ignored and certainly could not be denied. It was causing many of the people in the crowd to really question, is this in fact the Messiah, the one that was to come? They were putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were seeking to dissuade the crowd from believing in Jesus. And so, it was such a notable miracle that it could not be denied. They said, instead of the fact that he was the son of God, they said he was doing this miracle by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. That he was in cahoots with the most powerful demon, and that's how he was able to perform such a miracle. Of course, that was not true, and it was a sham. They didn't really believe that. And Jesus exposed the error of their teaching, and he confronted them about the sham that they were uh, setting forth. This morning, we see the response that the scribes and Pharisees have to the rebuke of Jesus. If you notice Matthew twelve thirty-eight, then in response to what Jesus had just said, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now they treat him with respect in calling him teacher, and they are presenting themselves as wanting to be instructed. We want to learn from you. If only you would just simply do one thing from us. Just give us a sign that you're really from God. This, after the miracle he just performed, this after he's just uh, exposing their evilness and their uh, sham of failing to believe in him, and they're back at it once again, saying, if you just give us a sign. So Jesus' response is given to us in verse 39. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Their response, their request for a sign is evil. Why would Jesus say such a thing? Because it's just a continuation of their, sm- their smokescreen. The Pharisees are only compounding their guilt by asking for yet more proof when they have more than sufficient proof to demonstrate that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Jesus's position is that they have no excuse in failing to appreciate his teaching. They had been given already far more privileges and reason to believe than any previous generation had received. Jesus rebukes them by citing two examples of peoples that have repented at the preaching of God's word when no one as great as He was present to preach and teach that word. The theme this morning is Jesus gives two examples of why previous generations will rise up in judgment against the generation that was alive during Jesus' day for falling down, for failing to heed. Jesus' teaching. We'll look at the historical data, and then at the end, we'll bring it up to the date in our generation. But we begin by noting that the Ninevites will rise up in the judgment for repenting at the preaching of Jonah, and Jesus is greater than Jonah. Verse 39. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then verse 41. The men of Nineveh will, will rise up in the judgment with this generation of it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here. In Jonah, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 12 verse 40, it says this. Just as Jonah was 3 days and 3 nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be 3 days and 3 nights in the heart of the earth. He says that that it is a sign to them. So in what sense is Jonah's being in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights to be compared to Jesus' being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Two levels. At the surface level, it is a demonstration that Jonah was indeed a prophet of God. God miraculously spared the life of Jonah. Jonah is cast overboard, falls into the sea, and a great fish comes and swallows Jonah, and he's kept alive for three days and then spit out on the earth, vindicating Jonah as a prophet of God. Jesus is going to be vindicated as a prophet of God by being dead for three days and rising from the dead and, as such, vindicating that he indeed is a spokesman for God. But I say to you, there's more to it than that. And as Jesus stands before them, we are to see that Jesus is greater than Jonah in mercy, compassion, and grace. The reason that Jonah is in the belly of the fish is out of a rebellious spirit in the heart and mind of Jonah. Jonah is told to go to Nineveh and preach to them a message of repentance. He doesn't want to see them repent. He doesn't want to see them spared. He wants to see them destroyed. He hates the Ninevites. He hates what they have done, and he doesn't want them to experience the mercy of God. He refuses to take to them the message of God. Instead, he goes in the opposite direction. God works by sending a great storm, so much so that the ship is going to be lost. So the sailors try to find out what's going on here. They find out that Jonah is a prophet of God. He's been disobeying God. They say to Jonah, what should we do? Jonah is unrepentant. Jonah says, just cast me over the the side of the ship, be done with me. They do, they cast him over the side of the ship. God has this fish swallow uh, uh, Jonah alive. He's in that belly of the fish for three days and three nights and finally comes to a place of repentance in which he is willing to do what God would have him to do, that is namely to preach the word of God at Nineveh. However, the heart of Jonah never changes. In Jonah chapter 3, when Jonah has preached the message of condemnation to the Ninevites, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. They call out for God to be merciful, and God indeed is merciful and spares them. Now listen to the text. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? He says to Jonah, is that the proper response? Should you be angered at my grace in delivering this people? Jesus' point is, Imagine a prophet like that being sent to you. Imagine a prophet being sent to you who wants your destruction. Who doesn't want you to be spared. Who laments and is angered when people turn to God. How might you respond to a prophet like that? The Ninevites, when they heard a prophet like that, repented. The prophet that is standing before them is long suffering, gracious, and merciful. He's been putting up with their garbage day in and day out, as they had been raising their smoke screens, hiding behind statements when he knows their rebellion and wicked heart. And he says to them, you are wicked in asking for a sign. I have proven to you who I am. And I'll give you one more sign to show how guilty you are. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, I'm going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But it won't be because Jesus is rebellious. It won't be because he will not do the will of the Father. He is going to be in the earth three days and three nights because of the sin of those that he bears. Because of the work of God. Jonah sits, contemplates what God is doing, and is angered by the repentance of the Ninevites. Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem to go to the cross, weeps over those that are going to refuse him. Matthew 23, 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Luke 19.41, and when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. He says to these Pharisees who stand before him, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against you. You say, if only you would give us some proof as to who you are. Oh, we would welcome your teaching. Jesus said, they listened to the teaching of Jonah. And a greater than Jonah is here. And then he cites a second example. That of the Queen of, of the South, or the Queen of Sheba. Sheba. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment because she sought the wisdom of Solomon and greater than a Solomon is here. The woman of the south, the queen, was of great prominence. She was a queen over a vast empire, had great wealth that we'll see in just a moment, a person of dignity and respect. And she humbled herself in order to travel a great distance just to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The uh, biblical text for this is First Kings chapter 10. I'm going to read it. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. If not, just listen. First Kings chapter 10, reading verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon... Concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. Sound familiar? These Pharisees had come testing Jesus with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, she stood back. She looked. The house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord There was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpasses the report that I heard. This queen of the south had heard of the fame and the wisdom of Solomon. She finds it hard to believe that the things that she heard about Solomon could be true, but she went to find out. And she asked him hard and difficult questions. And he answered every one of them. And then she just took note of his accomplishments, of what he had done. And as she stood back, she said, the half hasn't been told Of what you have done. Your power. Your wisdom. She goes on to say. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants. Who continually stand before you. And hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God. How privileged. She says to Solomon. That your servants. Can stand before you continually. And hear your wisdom. God is to be praised for what He is doing in Israel. Here are these scribes and Pharisees who have come asking hard questions of Jesus, who answered everyone, exposed their motives did great and mighty miracles that were totally unexplainable, displayed his power, and rather than saying, blessed be God, who has given his son to the nation of Israel to teach us his word, have the audacity to say, teacher, just give us a sign. And we will believe. Jesus says the Queen of the South is going to rise up in the judgment. She's going to rise up and she's going to condemn you. Because greater than a Solomon is here. If she could see God at work in Solomon, how much more should you see God at work in me? they gave lip service to wanting to hear the message of God. But in actuality, they did not. So, where does that leave us today? What about the generation that we are living in? Jesus is no longer with us. He isn't in this pulpit. There is no place on the face of the earth that we can travel to, no matter how far. And hear his voice. But can we actually receive his teaching and hear his word? I submit to you, we can. And we have his word, we have his message, we have the Bible. And I submit to you that there are many around this world, and especially in America, who Other generations are going to rise up in judgment against because they sought the word of God when the opportunities were bleak in compared to the opportunities that we have today and fail to seek God's word as they did. There are so many ways in which we have it better today than previous generations did in relationship to the Word of God. First, the way that we have it better is that people want to say, you know, I, I would believe this. I, I, I would I would would read this, I would devote myself to it, if there was just some way that I could know that this was truth. If there was just some way that I knew that the Bible really was the Word of God. If God would just give me a sign. Sound familiar? If God would just give me a sign that the Bible is true, I believe it. We have more proof today in our generation than any generation that went before us of the validity of the Word of God. More proof than any generation that went before us. That proof comes. In two dramatic forms. The first form that that proof comes to us is in archaeological attestations that the Word of God is true. Here's just one of the many resources Archaeological Study Bible the Archaeological Study Bible. In here are footnotes to the text that speak of the archaeological findings that bear witness to the accuracy and to the credibility of the Word of God. The most significant find has come to us in our generations in the 1940s in the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Past generations had to deal with what was known as the JEDP theory. It was really, really popular in the, in the 1800s and early 1900s. It was a way of asserting how the Bible was put together And it really was given to undermine the whole aspect of prophecy. How could the Bible be so accurate about future events? So they postulated, well, they were written afterwards. And the theory went that the Bible was really composed by people that spoke of Jehovah, just the J, so the Jehovah portions of the Word of God, and there's the then the Elohim portions. Other word of God, and then there was the Deuteronomist portions, the law portions, and then there's the prophet portions. And these things would be intertwined, and peoples at different ages and different generations, different time periods, would rewrite things back into the Bible so that the Bible that we have today doesn't look anything like the Bible that was first written but it was changed dramatically. And one of the texts of the scripture that were most radically debated was Isaiah. God in his mercy and God in his grace allowed for the finding of the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, a text that was much, 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 much older than anything we ever previously had. And there were excerpts from Isaiah that read identical to the way it reads today. In the 1800s, they didn't have that to refute the accuracy and the authority. Of the scriptures. They didn't have the findings of the books in the Babylonian Empire that we have today. They didn't have all of the proof that we have today. If any generation ought to believe in the authority of the scripture, it is our generation. We know its value. We know its worth. And then as we think of the extent that the Queen of Sheba went to, the the way that she traveled to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the access to the word of God in our generation is far superior than the access that any generation had before us. Just think of The church fathers, the Christians that went before us before the time of the printing press, and how difficult it was to have a copy of the Word of God. It had to be hand copied. And then finally, with Gutenberg comes the printing press. But now the Bible was very expensive. Still, few people had the Word of God. Contrast that to America today, where according to, and I'm going to give you a lot of statistics statistics from now on, it comes from a survey that was conducted in 2014, extremely recent, 2014, survey conducted by the Barna Group in association with American Bible Society. The average American household has 4.7 printed copies of the Scripture. 4.7 copies. Average household in America. Previous generations didn't have 4.7 copies. Today, right now, You can have, if you have a computer or a smartphone, a copy of the Word of God for free. You can download the ESV Bible for free at numerous sites. Not only can you download the ESV for free, but on a device this size, my cell phone, I have nine translations plus the Hebrew, Old Testament, and Greek New Testament on my phone. That is with me all the time. No generation before us had this. We do. We do. We can carry it wherever we go. Years ago, uh, I carried a pocket Bible. In fact, I just looked I, got, I have six of them. Uh, pocket Bibles. Uh, my eyesight is not good enough to read most of them anymore, because they're pretty small. And uh, so I went from carrying a pocket Bible to eventually carrying a pocket New Testament. Had that opportunity. But, now I don't need to. Now I can read it on here, and I can adjust just the font. And even though it's small, I can have the font this big if I need to. And I can read it. That's the day and age in which we live. Previous generations were told this. Deuteronomy chapter 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children You'll talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes, in order to remind the children of Israel of the importance of the word of God. God said, "Take a small portion of it and put it on your hand. Wear it to remind you of the significance, the importance And so what they did was, what was most popular was the Shema. The passage, that's Hebrew for here. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They'd write that so minusculely to be able to fit it on their hands. They couldn't read it. It just served as a reminder. You know what's probably going to happen in our generation? We're probably going to have a smart watch real soon in which we can have the whole Bible on our wrist. Do you realize that? What God said to do in symbol, we're able to do in actuality. Have the entire Bible on our wrist. No generation previous to that us has had that. We're going to be accountable. There are some amazing examples of commitment to the Word of God by previous generations. We can speak of William Tyndale and those who translated the Scriptures. But this morning, I want us to focus upon one individual. And I have a reason. I've been encouraging you to read the Bible through in a year. Read the Bible through in a year. That may seem like a big task. It shouldn't, and I'll tell you why it shouldn't in just a moment. But before I get there, I'd like to talk to you about Alexander Cruden. I don't know if you know that name or not, but Alexander Cruden was born in 1699. He died in 1770. Cruden was a layman. wasn't a Preacher wasn't a clergyman, he was a layman. But he's famous for a project. He's famous for a work entitled Cruden's Complete Concordance. A concordance is a book that provides an alphabetized list of the words found in the Bible followed by the biblical references for the verses in which that particular word is found. So take the word man, for example. You'd look up, find the word man, and then listed behind it would be the references, all the places in the scripture where the word man is to be found. Alexander Cruden thought what a wonderful help it would be if They had the King James Bible. If there were a concordance, if there would be a way to find where certain things were found in the Bible. So Alexander Cruden decided that he was going to make a concordance, he was going to list the words of Scripture and the places where they are found. So how did he go about that? He was a bookseller by trade, and he had a tiny bookstore. And he decided to rise up early and to stay up late and work on his concordance, and any time that was available to him between customers, he would work on his concordance. Every day... He got up at 7 o'clock in the morning and worked on his concordance until 1 o'clock the next morning. He went to bed for 6 hours and then started again. 18 hours a day he spent on working on his concordance. Now remember, he's got to do this by hand. Remember, he doesn't have a word processor. He's writing it out. Remember, he doesn't have a digitalized copy. He is working from a hand, well, he's written from a, a printed manuscript, okay? Remember, it's before the time of electricity. So many of these hours, it's dark outside. That means he's got to be working by a candlelight or a lamp But not the kind of light that we have to work with today. He has to work in that kind of environment and the Word of God. He completed his concordance in less than a year. Less than a year. Just think about this. Sitting down, write out Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the word, words with God. so so beginning, God. Well, I just I just quoted John 1-1. Okay. So we'll go back there, okay? John 1-1. Just thinking about doing that. Okay. In the beginning was the word, words with God. Words with, beginning, God, Word. Write it down reads the next verse, write down the word. When he finds one, he's got to go back, look through, can't, can't do a search. You know, he's got to go back through his documents and say, oh, here it is, word, here's another reference to it over here, John 1.14, the word became flesh. Okay? And just imagine doing that, that process, and finishing in less than a year. Now, he had to proofread it and get it published. And so, what he started in 19... 19- excuse me, what he started in 1735 was actually published in 1737. His biographer, Edith Oliver, writes this, and I quote, Was there ever before or since the year 1737 another enthusiast for whom it was so no drudgery, but a sustained passion and delight to creep conscientiously Word by word through every chapter of the Bible, and that not once only, but again and again and again and again. In less than a year. He's going to rise up in the judgment. When we say, Wow, reading through the Bible in a year, that's tough. In contrast to that generation, think about our generation. Now let me talk to you about America as a whole. Our generation has more discretionary time than any generation that went before us. But uh, among those who say that their Bible reading decreased in the last year, the number one reason, this is again from that survey, was busyness. (laughs) 40% report they were too busy with life's responsibilities, job, family, etc., to read the word of God. They were too busy. Think about the discretionary time we have. Think about how long things took years ago to prepare a meal. You had to butcher the animal. You had to prepare it. You had to cook it. There was no, nothing that was condensed in a can. You could just go out and buy, etc., etc, etc. Think about getting anywhere. If you wanted to travel, you, you, you just didn't go out and turn a key over in a car. you had to hook up a horse and wagon. You had to get into a buggy. You couldn't travel at 60 miles an hour. You had to travel at 6 miles an hour, you know, behind this horse and all those things. We have more discretionary time than any generation before us. Think about having to heat your house, you know. You had to go out and you had to chop the wood and do all those things. We don't have those issues today. We are busy to be sure, but it's discretionary. We can choose what we're doing. We can choose how we spend our time. So it's a matter of priority. It's a matter of priority. Now, listen to this disconnect. Listen to this disconnect. According to this survey, now, this is surveys done by This survey includes all Americans, not just Christians, and not just people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. According to the general American public, 75% say that America is in moral decline. 75% of Americans say America is in moral decline. One-third of Americans say that the largest contributing factor to the moral decline is the lack of prominence of the word of God in the society. Now think about that one. 33% of the general American public says that the primary reason for the moral decline is... The lack of the prominence of the Scripture in society. Here's one that really blows me away. Fifty six percent. Now, these aren't Christians. of the American public say the Bible is the word of God and agree that it is inspired and without error. Think about that one. 56% of Americans say the Bible is inspired and without error. Only 57% ever read the Bible. And the majority of the 57%, so now we're down to 26%, the majority of those that read the Bible read it four times a year or less. Four times a year or less. The majority of those that say they read it, which is only 57%. They say the nation's in moral decline. They say that the reason is the lack of prominence of the word of God. They say the Bible is the word of God, but they don't read it. Where is the disconnect? Why does that happen? Well, we could see that in society, but I I just really want to drive it home for us today. They're sitting in in the pews. Where does the disconnect come in saying, We believe the Bible to be the inspired, infallible Word of God without error. I don't think there's anybody in this room that wouldn't affirm that. Then why don't we give it more attention? If we really believe that. I found this to be very helpful. The uh, president of the American Bible Society, Douglas Birdzall, made this comparison and I quote, quote, I see the problem as analogous to obesity in America. We have an awful lot of people who realize they're overweight, but they don't follow a diet, he said. Quote, unquote. The disconnect of saying, yeah, I know it's bad for me to be overweight, and I know it's bad that that, uh, I'm carrying these extra pounds, but I'm not going to do anything about it. He says, well, that's kind of the way it is with reading the Bible. There is this recognition, yeah, I should, and it would be good for me, and perhaps even be bad for me that I don't, but I don't read it like I should. So, what's the solution? And this morning, my goal is not to set forth guilt, but to really try to be helpful. Two things are needed. First, a re-evaluation of priorities. A reevaluation of priorities. Ephesians 5 says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. The world's priorities aren't going to include the scriptures. And it's really easy for the world's priorities to rub off on us. So, we have to make a conscious effort to say reading the scriptures is going to be a priority. Secondly, and as I say, I don't want to just beat people into guilt here. I want to be helpful. So let me say the second thing, a discipline plan. A discipline plan. What can you do in your busy life besides Reorganizing your priorities. What can you do in your busy life to try to read the Bible more? First thing you can do is listen to the Bible. You don't have to read it. You can have somebody read it to you. You can have tapes, CDs, podcasts, you name it. Whatever the listening Device you have, you can get the Bible on tape. An audio version of the Scripture takes 76 hours to read. So in 76 hours, you can listen to the whole Bible being read. For some, that's great. I hate listening to an audio book. I can't concentrate listening to an audio book, let alone the scriptures. So I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to think, well, I, I've, I've gotten books that I wanted to know what was in them, but I didn't want to take the time to read them, and so I got them on tape and, and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to listen to them. My mind would wander, it just wasn't effective for me, but maybe it's effective for you. That's something you can do, you can have it read to you. Another thing that you can do, I really would encourage you if you've got a smartphone. How many people have a smartphone? Would you raise your hand? Okay, it's the the majority of the congregation. I hope you have a copy of the scripture on your phone. Okay, free copy of the ESV at Olive Tree. Download Olive Tree and download that for nothing. You can download Kindle for nothing. Get a free copy of ESV on your Kindle uh, for your phone, Kindle for your computer, ESV, and get it for nothing. Okay? Just think about the time that you're standing around waiting, waiting. You don't have to read it all at one time. If you would take five minutes, four times a day, you would read through the Bible in a year. Five minutes, four times a day, would get you through the Bible in a year. Five minutes. Think of how many five minutes you have in a day that is absolutely wasted by waiting. Sitting in a doctor's office, whip out your phone and read a chapter of the Word of God. You're sitting You're picking up your kids from a sporting event or an activity and you're sitting in your car waiting. Read the Bible. If you're like me, my day off, a lot of times we do our shopping, grocery shopping, so on. I don't help my wife, I'm sorry. I sit in the car. I'm waiting. But I'm usually reading while I'm sitting there. No extra time, No time set aside, just using what would normally be wasted time. If you don't have one of these, you can carry a pocket Bible. You can do the same thing. Use the most of your time. It would be wonderful if you'd set time aside during the day, sometime, morning, night, whatever the case may be. That would be helpful. But all I'm saying to you is... Develop a plan. Recognize its importance. But my biggest plea to you this morning is be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. Because the excuse, which is the number one excuse, according to the survey, which says, I just don't have enough time. Other generations are going to rise up in judgment and look at us and say, man, do I wish I had the opportunities that you have and the time that you had to read the scripture when they gave themselves relentlessly hours in the word of God. And I won't even go on with all the helps and the study tools that we have to readily understand it that they didn't possess. And a concordance that you had to stop and look things up. And now you can do digital searches in that thing. And, you know, I, I don't, it's just mind-boggling to me. I, I have a Bible program on here with 1,700 books in it on my phone. What we have today is absolutely amazing. Let's give ourselves to the Word of God and be careful with the excuses that we make. Are they going to really hold water? Back to the scribes and the Pharisees. The Ninevites are going to stand up in judgment against them because greater than a Jonah was there. Queen Sheba is going to rise up because greater than a Solomon was there. Previous generations are going to rise up because man, we didn't have the opportunities that you have. We have a greater thing today in the access and availability of the Word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, bless us. Help us to commit ourselves to reading and studying the Word of God. Help us to make good use of our time, redeeming the time, knowing that the days in which we live are evil, that The people around us don't have those kind of priorities. May it not rub off on us. May we guard our priorities and make good use of our time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.